A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Audio Time Capsule, episode 28. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I bring on a guest, get them to leave 20 questions, and then a year later bring them back on to answer them. I then edit it so they're talking to their past self. All past voices will sound like this. And all future voices will sound like this. In this episode, we had on Rufus Hound. I was hesitant to call him a comedian or an actor or a writer or anything, as in this episode, he talks about how he sees and labels himself, and I didn't really want to ruin that, so I'm just going to say, we have on Rufus Hound. Um, Special thanks to Lewis Osborne and everyone at the Garrick Theatre for helping make this episode happen. I couldn't have done that without you. I really appreciate all the support and your hard work to make this episode a reality genuinely thank you very much also rufus himself goes about saying um at this point i'm 99 sure but it could change rufus is still in the show don quixote in the west end i will leave a link to his twitter so you can find out the latest updates on whether that show has continued or whether he's in a different show or whether he has done another project which he talks about in the podcast which i don't want to ruin because it's not my place to say um i'm doing the edinburgh fringe with a show called every room becomes a panic room when you overthink enough it's in the grass market at sweet venues if you can come and support me please do if you can't come please check out a list of the tour shows and previews that i've got in the show notes or you can just send a friend who is going to edinburgh that'd be really helpful and appreciated any and all support is massively massively well received if you're new here please don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you're old here please do remember to give us an honest ideally positive review in itunes and either way please do join the facebook group it's called the audio time capsule and it's on facebook obviously but for now let's open the audio time capsule of rufus hound my name is rufus hound it is the 20th of november 2017 i am speaking to you from the past backstage at the backyard comedy club in bethnal green how do I feel about leaving these questions? Um, I don't really feel much of anything, really. Just got to think of what the questions will be, but I'm imagining that that will, that those questions will occur to me as I continue 
asking them. Hello, my name is Rufus Hound and this is the 10th of January 2019. I'm about to hear the questions that I asked myself and I am somewhat perturbed that I may have been uh, emotionally too open in the uh, question asking and therefore I'm slightly worried about what it is that I most imagined would be pertinent one year later. Imagining that you're opening this time capsule a year from now, you're only four months off your 40th birthday. Uh, when you turned 30, you didn't feel like ageing was really a bigger deal. But in the last few years, there's definitely been a, a change of heart about that. So, how do you feel now that you're nearly 40? Well, what an excellent question. <laughs> Although uh, maybe everyone says that uh, on this podcast. So if you're a regular listener, apologies for being completely uh, um, hack. Um, well, yeah, I suppose the ongoing ennui, maybe, about getting older is ongoing. I think the the funny thing about working with... Uh, with companies of actors in theatre, um, certainly in musical theatre, is that they all tend to be quite young. So increasingly I find myself in a working world where I'm the oldest person, which frankly only goes to underline my own sense of perishing. Um, so yeah, I feel like a sort of odd balance that on one hand, often I feel like the old man of the sea, and then other times I have to sort of remember that Actually, up until I'm 50, I'm still technically in the prime of my bloody life. Um, and, yeah, I think not being put off doing physical stuff on the grounds of like, oh, well, I, I'm nearly 40 now. Um, but at the same time, recognising that I am and that some of that physical stuff might kill me. Um, the actual birthday itself is a bit of a weird one. I've spent so long not really being bothered about birthdays that, you know, 40 is just a, another one. But my missus has been planning her 40th birthday for the last three years and will be paying off with a massive party in September. So, I don't know, I, I, it's, it, it's a weird one. I met a woman this weekend just past who specialises in designing rituals. And I think the power of ritual, of you know, marking certain moments in our lives, feels important. Um, but yet, yeah, an actual obvious one, like my own 40th birthday, on some level theoretically marking the exact halfway point of my life, would most naturally have a ritual that I could easily buy into. And yet, somehow, I still can't be bothered. Well, I'm glad that we're not too troubled by becoming more senior. In the last six months or so, you've had a bit of a rethink about what it is to be a dad. Do you keep that up? Did you change? Is everything smashing? Or uh, has it all changed again? Well, uh, I would struggle to remember what that great uh, <laughs> Damascene moment in parental philosophy was. Um, I've been away a lot the last year. And so that's meant that largely my children have been attended to by my wife and by their mum. Um, I think, what do I think about being a parent? Just largely that kindness is the 
I mean, I think this about all things, but children need to be told what to do and, you know, what they need to be doing to keep themselves as safe as possible and not die or poison themselves or turn into massive arseholes. Um, but on the whole, there's a kind way of doing that. And so I don't think that was necessarily something that only occurred to me 18 months ago, but I'm trying to keep that up. Uh, the other thing is, by being the one that's away a lot, often you feel like when you do get a chance to spend time with your children, spoiling them <laughs> is a very shorthand way of uh, trying to basically manufacture memories that they can look back on in their lives of having thought that you were a decent person because uh, in absence it's uh, hard for them to well it's hard for you to make them think very much of you at all now currently the news is awash with uh, white middle-aged men who have abused their power uh, and has largely left women feeling hugely disenfranchised that's changing you've spent the last sort of three or four years really thinking quite hard about all of that so how do you feel about your specific place in the world of modern feminism well i suppose what i really came to the conclusion of is just get out the way you know it's the difference between trying to be a a leader on that or an ally and all of the brilliant women that I know who are concerned with these sorts of matters are far more interested in having allies than they are having somebody speak on their behalf. So it's weird in that it feels both the response to it should be passive because there's no sense in mansplaining feminism on behalf of women who are perfectly capable of explaining it ten times better than I ever will from a position of knowledge generated on the inside as opposed to you know, through the lens of white male privilege. But I do also... The thing, I guess, that I've, I really ended up thinking about all of it is that we are all, as people, the product of our experience of our younger lives. And so there are undoubtedly attitudes that I hold that I have never necessarily questioned or understood that then inform how I feel about a, a bunch of different things. It might well be that just because I feel them doesn't make them relevant or interesting or useful or helpful, um, but it doesn't necessarily stop them being true. So on the whole, what I try and do is just shut up and listen more than I talk. However, I think one of the things that I have thought in the last couple of weeks is I work with a brilliant woman called Kate, uh, who I see every day, and Kate has a filthy sense of humour. And um, quite often, she'll be uh, saying something uh, disgusting, or filthy, or horrible, and I find that very funny, and yet I don't feel like I can join in with that joke, because more often than not, it's just the two of us alone in a room, and men getting that wrong, reading that situation wrong and behaving in a way that it then transpired to the other person in the room uh, was really uncomfortable makes me feel like I don't really know my own mind or don't really know my own or, or don't necessarily trust my instincts for what is 
the right way to behave in that situation. Now, when I talk to Kate about that, she tells me not to be such a fucking arsehole <laughs> because she's a perfectly decent, normal and funny woman. Um, but I still feel very troubled by it. I don't... I, uh, the, the fear of getting that wrong outweighs the kind of more boorish instinct to just join in and trust that, hey, you know, we're just two people having a laugh rather than what if I overstep the line or what if I am exactly part of, you know, unintentionally part of uh, a situation that would leave a brilliant woman feeling unpleasant on some level. So that's sort of how I feel about it is I now know enough to know that there is a kind of the possibility for negative fallout in so many of the things I've often taken for granted that it, it, yeah, leaves me feeling unconfident and certainly new new friendship relationships with women always feel to me a great deal more complicated than new friendship relationships with men um, as a result, which therefore encourages easier relationships with men than it does with women which is the exact opposite of course of what feminism should be about and what we should all be trying to achieve frankie boyle i think said it best which is men who are against feminism are like people drowning who are swearing at the lifeboats uh you know this is the one chance of rescue you should be clinging on to it with both hands so yeah i guess the fear of getting it wrong uh, plays some part in my day-to-day thinking about all of it. And I am also aware that that exact fear is also unuseful in terms of creating equal relationships with men and women that I think are brilliant and, you know, funny. It's a very flabby answer, but uh, unfortunately is about the best summation I can uh, offer you on that. All right, all right, I get it. I'll just listen. Whenever anybody else interviews you, they always start by asking, so what is it you are? Are you a comedian? Are you an actor? Are you a host? Are you... What is it you do? It always makes you laugh when people ask you that. So uh, let's ask you that. What is it you do? <laughs> it always makes me laugh. And the thing is, you can understand why people ask the question, especially people whose job it is to interview you, because they're trying to isolate some, you know, truth. And, you know, if you meet somebody at a party, the first thing you ask them is, what do you do? Um, so, yeah, we, we all have some association with being able to, or, or the desire to want to be able to kind of pigeonhole somebody or mark their card. Um, I mean, I've spent the last year, really, doing theatre pretty much exclusively. So I would say actor above and beyond anything else. But arguably, there's writing that I've been desperate to do for the last year and just haven't quite got the chutzpah together to make that happen. So, yeah, I mean, actor, because it's the thing I actually do. But if we then rolled out the list of all the things that I wanted to do last year and haven't done, (laughs) then... uh, Yeah, who knows what that answer is, but actor. It's a great answer. Finally, a great answer. Quite excitingly, for the last three or four years, 
as I speak to you, you've always been able to look in the diary and sort of see six, seven, eight, nine, ten months ahead what's coming in. But actually, at this exact point in time, you've just finished a bunch of voiceovers for cartoons and and, uh, TV shows and things like that. And as of January, there's really nothing in the diary at all. We've not really been terribly worried about that. But um, are you paying your mortgage? Yes, I am. Although, uh, I would imagine shortly after uh, I recorded these questions, um, I got a gig in Chichester. While I was doing the gig for the Chichester Festival Theatre, I got another gig doing a tour of Dusty Springfield. And during that, got the phone call that Don Quixote was happening again. So, fairly swiftly after that, everything kind of lined up. Um Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, with Don Quixote due to finish in three weeks, literally nothing in the diary. So, yeah, managed to keep the mortgage going for another year. But um, a year from now, Christ knows. Well, I'm sure it'll all work out. Last year was all right. The biggest thing that's probably happened in the last year is that you and Beth have taken stock of both of your lives and begun to wonder if what you are both doing is what you really want to be doing. You have a plan at the uh, at the end of July 2018 to maybe move more rurally um, uh, and to make things, build things in the woods. Is that still the plan? If not, what changed? And if that is still the plan, are you any closer to owning a tape here? <laughs> No, no, none of that happened. (laughs) Um, Yeah, look, where we live is sort of on the outskirts of London, just on the inside of the M25. And for, for everything that we have in our lives, community and friends, where we live and schools for the kids and everything, it would have to really uh, be considerably better to bring about the need to move and that just didn't happen and so then it was about the desire to move and I think somewhat selfishly even though uh, the dream of being further out and with woods and whatnot um, seems incredibly appealing it doesn't actually help the lives of the other three people who rely on me to provide some form of stability so no old mate I'm sorry about that didn't happen uh, it's still very much the dream, as indeed tapir ownership uh, also remains uh, as the kind of ideological or zoological cherry on the ideological cake. But um, no, none of those things happened. You stayed put. Try, did try and um, did try and move to a mate's house uh, who self-built this incredible house right on the river, not a million miles away from where you live, but. Uh, because it was a self-build, the mortgage for that is very tricky, and because it's on a floodplain, you've got to have basically half of all the money that you're trying to mortgage, and uh, you didn't have that. So, uh, no, none of that have stayed exactly where I was. (laughs) Oh, well, if we're not moving, I might as well get comfy. The writing of American woodworker and actor Nick Offerman have, has been uh, very influential on you, as I, well, certainly up on, 
to the point I'm speaking to you. Um, have you remembered that? Because you know what you're like. Quite often, something will really resonate and you'll start making plans based on how much it resonates and then just time gets in the way and you forget why that was so important to hear. So, uh, yeah, Nick Offerman, is that still making sense to you or have you forgotten it, you idiot? <laughs> um, no, remembered it. Um, got a print uh, of Nick Offerman... Uh, uh, in character in Parks and Rec, um, got they did a print of him uh, with his uh, canoe, um, which was I think the last time you saw uh, him in Parks and Rec, um, done up like a. Oh, this is a, a terribly described, but basically, some people made a print that was the last shot of Parks and Rec for Pawnee National Park, as if it was a national park poster. And, uh, yeah, you just got that for Christmas from your mum. So um, it's still, uh, it definitely still resonates. But I think ultimately, with being on tour and being in Chichester and then being in the south of France and then having this West End gig to do, the, the amount of actual time to build anything has been pretty minimal. Um, so, yeah, you know, everything Nick Offerman said has remained important, but the manifestation of the lessons learned from reading Nick Offerman has, yeah, kind of been eroded by dint of just being too busy. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I know exactly where we could put that, in our house, that we're not leaving. What was the last thing you made? And by made, I mean something that lasts, something tangible that you can point to. There's a puzzle um, that... We played in a market in, uh, where was it, Perpignan, uh, over the summer. And I took a photograph of it and then went to my in-laws' place where they had tools and scrap wood. And I made a, a, the same version of the puzzle. I think it's called something like the Puzzle of Kings. Um, it's a, one big square and then a series of rectangles and then four smaller squares that you slide round and round. And I think the minimum number of moves it can be completed in is something like 76. But yeah, it's a, it's about can you slide out the big square piece. And uh, yeah, made that over the course of uh, two days in August. Um, uh, then showed it to some people. It was left outside, immediately rained, and then <laughs> looked like shit. <laughs> but, uh, but for the sake of a bit of sanding and another coat of wax would, uh, yeah, was was good enough to be proud of oh that sounds lovely i look forward to having a go at that i'll uh, try not to leave it out in the rain now you've had two great ideas for plays for the last nine months have you actually pulled your finger out and written either of them no nope uh but you still think about them all the time so it's a magnificent form of uh, self-torture that uh that that even when I'm working incredibly hard and uh, keeping all the family stuff going, that there can still be a voice in the back of my head telling me that I'm failing. Um, the truth is, I just need to sit down and bloody write them. Just do the first drafts. And, uh, yep, I haven't done it. Thought, thought, genuinely, that once we got Quixote up and running and I'd have a lot more daytimes free, that that would be the time to really commit to it. But um, the play is pretty knackering. So instead I get home, watch Netflix till half past two in the morning and then get up at like 11 
and then only have four hours until I've got to leave the house again. And arguably that four hours should be spent writing, but is instead spent looking at Twitter and YouTube and just feeling terrible about the state of the world. So, well done me! The thing you struggled with most, probably in the last few years, is all of the logic that you've applied to the world kind of ends up just leading back to nihilism. But nihilism is aiming for nothing, and you've realised that that can't be what you're aiming for. Um, So you've got to build a way of thinking about the world that places value in something or drive towards something. How's that going? How, uh, any any great lessons learned over the last year? Yeah, the, um, the, the best version of this is optimistic nihilism, <laughs> which is to recognise that nothing inherently has any value, but bollocks to it, we're here, we may as well enjoy it. It's, it's like being at a family do. You're kind of there with all the cousins and the extended family, and like they all seem very nice, you don't really know any of them maybe you could get out of this early and slope off or whatever. But then two or three pints in, you think, actually, these people are all quite a good laugh. And that is essentially life. We are all hanging out with people that we don't really know, but a couple of beers in seem like they might be quite fun. And what adventures, what joys could be uncovered by, uh, rather than sloping off, um, getting stuck in. So, yes, that's the... uh, that's the the model that we now adhere to, optimistic nihilism. In some ways, we can be defined by our relationships to one another. So, are you a better brother? Are you a better husband? Are you a better son than you were on the 20th of November 2017? If not, why not? And if so, why so? Not really a better anything, I don't think. Um, the being away a lot uh, over the last year... I mean, it's it's a funny one in 2019 when you consider how connected we all are. You know, if I want to talk to my mate in South Carolina or if I want to talk to a mate of mine in New Zealand, then I can literally just get my phone out of my pocket, send them a text, an email, a picture, a video. And, and on some level, we remain connected. But the actual value that we instill in one another's lives is way more the mundane it's the quick cup of tea and the uh you know pop to the shops and you know pick up my kids or you know look after your baby for 20 minutes or you collect your dog from the sitter or whatever it's all of those mundane moments that actually matter and really do instill the value that we have in each other's lives you know, better son, better brother, those are all quite grand things in lots of ways. Um, when me and my brother hang out, we have a lovely time together. And I very much love spending time with him and I love him. But I certainly haven't spent a great deal of time this year going out of my way to make that happen. Because, you know, life gets in the bloody way. So, I think to be better at any of those things means actually just being around and spending time. And when your life is pulling you here, there and everywhere, then not really. Maybe the other way of thinking about it is that whose lives therefore have I been in? And that would be the company of uh, um, Present Laughter in Chichester and the company of Dusty that we did on tour and then the company of Don Quixote. And I would, with 
some uh, awareness that I, you know, would find it hard to analyse my own um, performance in these matters. I would think I'm probably a better member of a company now than I was a year ago or two years ago. I think I get that a bit more about, you know, what other people's considerations and sensitivities are. So, yeah, trying to be better in in the in the relationships that you actually experience every day. And I think I'm better at that. But the bigger term stuff, not really, no. And, you know, dwelling on that is, uh, I suppose, on some level, a point of sadness. But equally, without actually having the time to give to those relationships, again, just a, a, a different version of, I don't know, kind of flagellation, I suppose. Like, you can just keep reflecting on all the things that you're not doing well to make yourself feel as shitty about yourself as possible. So trying to get that balance right, recognising that there's room for improvement, but not to the point where you just feel like you're a massive arsehole the entire time, whilst at the same time making active steps to not be a massive arsehole. Now, you're not alone in being only procrastination you're not alone in being you know a creative soul who endlessly procrastinates and then beats themselves up for not getting on with doing what they need to be doing are you any closer to actually developing the personal discipline required to make the things write the things do the things that would make you feel happy with yourself or are you still just a man with a cork board full of ideas and no application the latter <laughs> I mean, it goes to show something. I clearly imagine that I would actually put that cork board up on the wall, but it's still sat on the skirting board, <laughs> vehemently unaffixed to uh, any loftier surface. Um, no, mate. No. Still an absolute twat when it comes to all of that. Sorry. Um, recently started to think that maybe some kind of uh, hypnotherapy. Like... Do you remember uh, Charlie, comedy writer Charlie Skelton, once said that space to him felt like torture because we were essentially goldfish in a bowl. A goldfish can look out of its bowl and see everything outside of its bowl, but it just does not have the means to get toward or interact with any of the things it can see. And that was how Charlie felt about space. Well, that's also how I feel about improvement, <laughs> is I don't understand how I can recognise how all of the things I could be doing with my time would bring about such greater benefit to my life and would genuinely make me happier, and yet I don't do any of them. What What is the glass holding me in the water? Why would I not choose to, you know, get out and, and, and be better and improve? It just feels like... Uh, I don't know, some kind of internal license that I've given myself to just permanently not get the fuck on with anything. It's very annoying. And by the way, congratulations on asking that question, knowing that almost certainly the answer was going to be this answer, because therefore I was just storing up a little bit of extra self-flagellation for, for you know, a year down the line. So well done me. That's, uh, that's about as meta uh, a... Uh, a way of castigating yourself as uh, Freud could ever have imagined. Well, if I resolve to do just one thing, it's put the corkboard up. Although, you're me from a year from now, 
and you didn't, so I guess I won't. Thanks for clearing that up. What was the last brilliant thing you read? Um, it's a very good question. What was the last brilliant thing I read? I've had about six books on the go and variously put them all down and not pick them back up again. Uh, God. And I'd love to tell you that, you know, that means I haven't really been buying a lot of books, but we all know that's not true. Um, God, this is absolutely terrible. Why can't I think of that? Basically, I've spent the last... Because of working so much, reading for fun sort of gone out the window. And now I just listen to, like, vast amounts of podcasts and YouTube things and read news stories. Subscribe to The Economist this year because I listen to No Such Things as Fish and they keep banging on about it. So I've read a lot of, like, magazine articles and long-form stuff, but, yeah, this has not been a great year for reading. Even when I was on holiday, didn't really read anything. Um... What was it called? The Woodpecker and the Matchstick? Or the cigarette that fell in love with a woodpecker? Sort of late seven or late 60s, early 70s LSD-inspired social satire. I was really enjoying that. Put it down, didn't put it back up. Started reading some Margaret Atwood. Phenomenal. Haven't picked it back up. Uh, was it The Only Story? Was that... I think it made like the book a shortlist or something. Started reading that. Fantastic. Haven't finished it. So yeah, not a productive year when it comes to reading. It's very depressing, <laughs> realising that. What was the last brilliant thing you saw at the cinema? Oh, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's as fine a piece of animation as I think I've ever seen in my entire life. A truly great film. What's been the most brilliant thing you've done with you, Beth, Albion Hilda. Uh, well, we went to um, uh, your in-laws for a full month in August. Um, having been away with work, uh, managed to hit the kids summer holidays, and uh, yeah, we we were down in uh, on the France-Spain border for the longest holiday you've ever had, and it was with Beth and Albion Hilda the entire time, um, and we had a really really just great month of it so yeah that why was that brilliant um well largely because you can't be away for that long without just doing the mundane stuff just because you're on holiday doesn't mean you haven't got to cook and clean and you know give people lifts places and go and do the shopping and all of that kind of stuff uh and so yeah it was just like being their dad rather than being the man who also lives in that house that they occasionally see when he's not asleep or leaving for work or getting in from something, or on a Sunday, just knackered. So, yeah, it was just lovely to kind of be around and and be reasonably normal, whilst at the same time, the temperature was glorious and sunny, and my in-laws are lovely, and my mum and Carl came for a bit, and various other friends and folks. We played a lot of board games, uh, I made that wooden puzzle thing. Um, and yeah, just a fine time was had by all. It was uh, it was a weird thing to be on that holiday and only while I was on it realised that that was the longest holiday I'd ever had. So, uh, well, at least I think anything from past the age of about 11. But 
Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Well, that's lovely. I mean, it's a bit like um, that nurse, isn't it, who uh, spent time with uh, terminal cancer patients. And uh, when she was speaking to them in their last days, they all said exactly the same thing, which is that they wish they'd spent less time at work and more time with their family. I mean, you know that. I know that, and I'm a year ago. So at least you're doing some of the things and having a stab at trying to make some of those things better. Good for you. One of the things you've been thinking most about recently is not really having any transferable skills. So if you don't do showing off for a living, then there's not really very much else you can do. But at the same time, you're aware that actually the bravery is in making the leap and taking the jump. So is showing off still just what you do because that's what you do? Or have you found a type of showing off that you're truly in love with? Or have you been given the chance to show off in something that you truly love? If not, has that informed the idea that maybe it's time to live an entirely different life? Do you still even want to lead an entirely different life? Well, I asked myself this question um, when I'd just been told that Don Quixote definitely wasn't happening which was the greatest thing I'd ever done in terms of showing off for a living of any kind. Um, and then having been told it wasn't going to happen, um, three months later we were told it was. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> recording my answers in my dressing room at the Garrick, um, where we have got just over three weeks left uh, until the end of our run. And yeah, it's been life's great joy to be in this show uh, at this theatre, um, playing to these audiences. The other picture of, like, is showing off really what I still want to do? It is, yeah. Um, I've def- I have I think, you know, doing Don Quixote's definitely um, reminded me of how good it can be. Um, and when we did Present Laughter in Chichester, that was a, another good example of sort of an indicator of how good it could be. It wasn't without its hitches. And then Dusty was a brilliant gang of people to do the show with, whilst it wasn't necessarily a show that I personally loved as much as audiences did. Um, Dusty got better responses from audiences than almost anything I've ever been in. Um, But it wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. So, yeah, all told, I think it just depends what the next job is, and the job after that, and the job after that. If any of them even come close to being as good as Don Quixote then I think that will uh, fill my enthusiasm tanks for a a while to come. Where do you want to be in the world? Oh, Christ. Well, I mean, you know, there's a difference between nihilism and cynicism, isn't there? And at the moment, I think... I think that what I would cast as realism, or being realistic, means that I don't necessarily hold out a great deal of hope for the human race. Um, so, you know, arguably on a fully functioning and inhabitable Mars would, um, possibly be the right answer to that question, the most honest answer to that question. Um, yeah, I just don't, it it strikes me that we, we all know that the, uh, you know, we all know we're, we're lying on the tracks and the train is coming, but in terms of convincing ourselves to get up and move out of the way, doesn't really seem to be occurring, not in a meaningful or as meaningful a way as we need it to. So Christ knows, really. I think um, just anywhere where fun is, 
seems to be about as good an answer as I can uh, deign to give without offering false hope or a or a, a sort of sunnier disposition than I, I feel is pertinent or logical. The obvious fear at the moment is that everything's going to hell in a handcart. We <laughs> yet to really, truly feel the economic effects of Brexit. Trump is still uh, president, and I hope by the time this is opened, that will no longer be the case. But, you know, he's a maniac taunting other nuclear powers. So is it some sort of hellish landscape you exist in where bombs have gone off and the effects of global warming have meant that the, you know, necessary migrations have taken place? Are you living in a ravaged and war-torn world or is it all just sort of rumbling on the changes to uh, slow to perceive? Have things got slightly better? Have things got slightly worse? And Brexit, everything is endlessly Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. But even though you realise that for the sort of ongoing wealth of the nation and things like that, Brexit's obviously a terrible idea, you have got quite a lot of sympathy for the idea that actually in that homogenised, globalised world, the EU only kind of reaffirms that and you've not really been a big fan of that. So the pulling out of Europe in order to be more able to kind of have smaller scale governance and therefore a greater effect on change and things like that doesn't necessarily seem to you to be a bad side. Have you got that entirely wrong? Because there's a good chance you have. (laughs) Mate, it's all still just question marks. Sorry. Trump's still president. You know, he's a sexually abusive predator who has appointed what appears to be sexually abusive predators to the Supreme Court. Um, Brexit, we're now at a point where uh, Theresa May is basically saying, well, it's this deal or no deal, trying to force everyone's hand. But it's just all, we still haven't really felt the effect, the economic effects of Article 50 being uh, enacted. I think we've got 90 days or something till we're properly out of Europe. Um, no, the bombs didn't drop. Uh, and the surge of immigrants largely was <laughs> held back by people who seem to think if you weren't born in this country, you are somehow lesser. Um, so, no, a, a year from now, I don't know that that prediction will necessarily be wrong. But, uh, yeah, uh, as it stands, it's all much of a muchness, mate. You know, podcast, people might be trying to listen to this to be entertained. Thanks for that pessimistic snooze fest you chump who are you hanging out with these days no one uh i'm either at work or i'm asleep or i'm with the family and i would hesitate to say that i hang out with my family much because i only get one day off a week so uh yeah no one really were you offered anything in the last year that you turned down that you wish you'd done no. I uh, I went for a couple of things that I didn't get that I was, you know, annoyed about. But, uh, yeah, didn't turn anything down because uh, everything lined up for Don Quixote and, you know, various other things. So, no, it's... Uh, there's no buyer's re- or lack of buying regret. <laughs> Bad phrasing. Was there anything that you said you really wanted to do that you did and now you wish you hadn't? Uh, no. No, I don't think so. 
there are things I said I would do that I didn't do that I wish I had. <laughs> but um, no, I think everything I've done over this last year, I went into reasonably eyes wide open and uh, nothing went spectacularly badly. So uh, yeah, not not too shabby. Over the last 12 months, what's your happiest memory? Um, opening night of Don Quixote uh, on November the... Well, I'm trying to remember what it was now. November the... Second, doesn't it? I've got a thing with it on here. Oh, hang on. Try not to break the full podcast equipment. Oh, it's my earphone. There you go, the 8th of November. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, on the 8th of November, uh, the happiest memory would be the 8th of November when we opened in Don Quixote. And doing the show is certainly enough to make me very happy. But uh, I think... You know, a memory that I will never forget is just walking up to Beth at the after show party and I just absolutely knew what she was thinking and she absolutely knew what I was thinking and uh, it is the most understood I have ever felt by another human being. It was sort of awesome in the true sense of being like overwhelmed by that experience. So, yeah, doing the show, working with Threlly, all of that is tip-top. But to look into the eyes of a woman you've been married to for over a decade and know that she completely gets it is uh, pretty unreal. If you could reset time and be where I am now, what's the one bit of advice you'd give me for the year going ahead? Get off your fucking ass and write those plays, you can't! Well, thank you very much for answering all my questions. Well, thank you for asking them. And may I say, you look devilishly handsome. That was Rufus. I loved hearing about how many life twists and turns he went through this year, from losing the West End gig, to getting it back, to going on the longest holiday of his life, to trying to make new things. I also also loved and agreed with his thoughts on optimistic nihilism. Um, that's pretty much what I subscribe to, well that and a bit of Buddhism, but let's, let's not get sidetracked, um, as well as his thoughts on being a better son. I've actually tried to make active steps since hearing him talk about that to, uh, to be a better son to both my parents. Um, not just get to know them, but actually be a better son in, in like, hold up my end of the bargain. So I really love this episode and got a lot out of it, and I, I hope you did as well. Rufus is not doing the Edinburgh Fringe this year, but there is a link to his Twitter in the show notes where you can find out where he's performing next. He might have started putting on scratch versions of that play that he mentioned by the time you hear this. Who knows? Check it out, follow him, thank him for taking part. All of these things really help out the show. I am doing the Edinburgh Fringe 2019 because I'm an idiot. Uh, I'm doing a show called Every Room becomes a panic room when you overthink enough uh, it's at 8.35 p.m. every day except Wednesdays when I get rudely awoken by the dustman it's in sweet venues in the grass market please come uh, there's a link in the show notes and if you can't come please please send some friends uh, all support is massively well received and really appreciated I can't thank you enough for all your ongoing support in my projects both on and offline genuinely it's amazingly humbling the audio time capsule is a fruit that got in gravity's weight production for the internet all elements were created by me comedian simon kane thank you very much for listening thank you very much for subscribing and thank you very much for rating and donating if you do i'll see you all in about 14 days time bye